on July 6, 1415, after serving six months in prison for his outspoken views against the Roman Catholic Church and the power of popes to issue indulgences, Jan Hus, the former rector of the University of Prague and disciple of John Wycliffe, was condemned for what they deemed was heresy. And as he knelt down, chained to a stake on the ground with wood and straw that was just piled up to his neck, they called him to recant his views against the Roman Catholic Church. And these were Jan Hus's words in response. God is my witness that the things charged against me I never preached. In the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, I am ready to die today. Around the same time, Huss is known to have said that you may roast this goose, Huss means goose in check, but a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. Just over a hundred years later, Martin Luther steps on the scene, the champion of the Reformation. And he comes onto the scene singing that swan song, believing himself to be that very song. And in 1521, as he stood trial before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Deed of Worms, the emperor called him to repent of everything that he had ever written, or else he would be burned at the stake. So Luther needed to think about that. And he took a night to consider it. But as he came back the next day, he came back with great resolve. He also came back with everybody in that great hall before the emperor, all eyes watching, wondering what was Luther going to say to the most powerful man in the world. And he had this to say, I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot do otherwise Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And as Luther is escorted out of that great hall, all the people are shouting, off to the pyre with him to be burned. Now, he wouldn't be burned. And he would go on to write a whole lot more and to make a whole lot more of an impact. But when we hear these stories about Luther and Huss, we stand in awe and we just admire how courageous these men were against all odds. Now, obviously, they're not the only ones in history who were courageous. There are men and women scattered throughout history who have lived courageous lives. But as we sit there and we think about them, we think about how did they stir up so much courage in the face of so much hostility coming at them? What was it that caused them to stand seemingly against the world at great cost to their very lives. In our text today, we see from Paul's own life that what gives him courage to stand in the midst of such hostility is not strength from within him, but is actually the one who stands by him in the midst of that conflict in order to execute his mission through him. Against all odds, Paul remains resolute because his resurrected Savior stands right by his side. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. 
Last week, we resumed our sermon series in the final section of the book of Acts. And as we've watched Paul enter into Jerusalem as a free man, much like Jesus' triumphal entry, Paul doesn't enter Jerusalem to great fanfare. People are not clapping whenever Paul is strolling into Jerusalem. Instead, there is a mob ready to kill him. (laughs) And in chapter 22, it begins what is called Paul's trial narrative that will take us to the end of the book, where Paul is moving from one trial to another, from a trial in Jerusalem to Caesarea to Rome. And he goes from giving testimony to Jesus before a Jerusalem mob, before the Jerusalem Supreme Court, before a Roman governor, and then he appeals to Caesar himself to go to Rome. Paul is no longer a free man, but a prisoner, preaching Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's already done that as a free man. Now he's going to do that, Acts 1-8 gig, all over as a bound man. This is what we're going to see. And adapting from John Bunyan's famous work, you could call this part of Acts, prisoner's progress, as it's been said. And so as Paul makes progress as a prisoner, he's defending not only his innocence, but also God's plan of salvation. That everything that that Paul has preached about Jesus aligns with God's plan from the very beginning. This is not something different. This all aligns with what God has said ever since the very beginning. That Paul is not anti-Jewish, But he acknowledges his Jewish heritage while also reinforcing that Christianity is actually the legitimate outgrowth of Judaism. Yes, this is a new faith, but this is a new faith that has old roots in the promises of God. The author Luke is making clear that Paul's defense is actually quite bigger than Paul himself. In fact, on a larger level, this is, really a defense of, this is really a defense of Christianity when we look at the back end of Acts. That this new movement called the way is innocent of all the things that people are claiming of them. That it can both coexist within the Roman, gover- within the Roman system while also challenging the very political structures of the day. It does so not by taking a throne. That's not how they do it nor is it by wielding a sword. Instead, it happens by walking in step with the Spirit as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And as we do, it remains an attractive, apologetic witness to the world of King Jesus and his unshakable kingdom. That's what we saw just last week. In our text, Paul's still on trial in Jerusalem, but this time it's not before a mob. This time, it's before the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. The stakes every single week in the book of Acts are only getting higher. So let's read Acts chapter 23. I'm going to begin in chapter 22, verse 30. So if you look there, we're going to begin there and read all the way through chapter 23. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him. And this is speaking about the Roman commander, by the way. He released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and he placed him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, 
Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest, Ananias, ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it's written, You must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, He cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirmed them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently. We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, So it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, Make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you're going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets here, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him brought him to the commander and said, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside, and inquired privately, What is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. He summoned two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote the following letter. Claudius Lysias, who is the Roman commander, to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. 
When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Well, I think the main idea that Luke is getting at for us in this text is this. That our courage to continue the mission is anchored in God's plan in protection. That our courage to continue the mission is anchored in God's plan and his protection. I think that's what Luke means for us to understand from this text for today. Our courage to continue in the mission is anchored in God's plan and protection. And what we see is that main idea worked out over the three scenes within this text. Because this is a narrative, there are three primary scenes in this text. And we see that main idea worked out in all three scenes. The first scene right here, is in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 23. And what we see is a divided prosecution. That's point number one, a divided prosecution. The second scene, which is point number two, we see a devious plot. So we move from a divided prosecution to a devious plot in verses 12 to 22. And then we finish with a picture of God's divine protection in verses 23 to 35 in point number three, a divine protection. So let's look at point number one. Let's look at the first scene, a divided prosecution. Our text begins with a punch in the mouth, literally begins with a punch in the mouth. Paul has just narrowly escaped a mob from killing him, Roman officials from flogging him, and now the Roman commander wants to know why everyone is so upset about this guy, Paul. So he puts him before the religious elite of the day, the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, the highest judicial, religious, and legal body among the Jews, does what but punch Paul in the mouth. Right? This is the Jewish Supreme Court of the day that Paul is standing before. The mob was bad enough. Now he's got to stand before the highest court. And we've seen the Sanhedrin before, in the book of Acts, right? They did not look kindly upon this new movement known as the way. Back in Acts chapter 5, they flogged Peter and the apostles for preaching in the temple. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen stood trial before them, and we know what happened to Stephen in chapter 7. He was stoned to death. Paul's trial begins with a punch in the mouth. Things are not looking up. It's often following the path of what we've already seen in the book of Acts. All because Paul said that he's lived his life before God in all good conscience to this day. 
that from top to bottom, Paul's life, his ministry, his message is not condemnable, but it's actually commendable to all the people of God. In fact, God is his witness that his life is commendable. But Ananias, the high priest, judging Paul to be out of hand, orders him to be struck. And just as quickly as Paul is struck in the mouth, Paul pipes back right at Ananias. And he says in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law and yet in violation of the law. Are you ordering me to be struck? Now this image of the whitewashed wall was a common metaphor for hypocrisy. Imagine a blank wall just covered in mold and filth. And you come along and you take a can of white paint and you just paint right over that. Some of you are probably thinking, that sounds a lot like my subcontractors that I got. Though the wall looks new on the outside because it's got a new fresh coat of paint, you know how dirty and nasty that thing is up underneath all that paint. We see Jesus use this metaphor in Matthew 23, 27, where he calls the Pharisees and the scribes, which was, we just read just a moment ago in the scripture reading. We see him use this very thing for the scribes and Pharisees when he calls them whitewashed tombs. Because on the outside, they seem righteous. But on the inside, they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You look like you've got life on the outside. But inside, there are just dead bones all over your body. Paul does the same thing here by exposing the high priest as the one who actually violates the very law that he judges by. And Luke is giving us a contrasting picture right here. You've got Paul whose life is worthy of imitation. He abides by Roman laws. He abides by Jewish laws, all better than Roman officials or even Jewish officials. He does it so well That is the Sanhedrin call him out for speaking against the high priest. How does he respond in verse 5? But with scripture in response. He bleeds the law of God. He bleeds the scriptures. And Luke is showing us that there is a changing of the guard. From the old religious leaders of the Sanhedrin to the apostles as the new leaders of God's people, the church. And one of the key distinctions between them is how they relate to Jesus. It's how they relate to Jesus. And in a stroke of genius, Paul turns this trial into an opportunity to testify about Jesus. Look right there in verse 6. He says that he is being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He is turning this trial into a testifying, a testifying to his testimony that Christ has been raised. This is what the conflict is all about. This is the issue at hand. Paul's not on trial because he hates Jews or Romans. He's not on trial because he's done anything wrong. He's on trial because of the hope of the resurrection. That's the heart of the issue. And Paul is sticking it right to them. And it's those very words that just ignite a powder keg of division among the Sanhedrin on a topic 
that they were very familiar with. The Sadducees, who made up the majority of the Sanhedrin, they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection from the dead in the end. The Pharisees did. Both of these religious parties held differing theological, convi- differing theological convictions, which is why this tension was already there from the get-go with the Sanhedrin. But both were missing the key ingredient in the resurrection. The one whose resurrection actually guarantees our own. That's what they were missing. The hope of resurrection is at the heart of Paul's defense because it is central to why Paul is doing what he is doing in the first place. It's central to everything for Paul. The reason that Paul is standing where he is is because the risen Jesus appeared to him and commissioned to him to go and to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. As a Pharisee, it may seem like Paul, oh, he's just playing party politics by throwing this just bomb right in the midst of the Sanhedrin. He must just be siding with the Pharisees. But right here, Paul is not trying to be sly. Paul's being strategic. He begins with a disputed doctrine among them to drive them to the main issue. That's what he's doing. He's being strategic. That because Jesus got up from the grave, our hope of resurrection is ultimately tied to his. If you're going to deal with anything regarding Paul, his beliefs, and Christianity, the way it's beliefs, you've got to deal with the resurrection. Friends, at the heart of Christianity is the claim that Jesus got up from the dead. And that historical event changes absolutely everything. Because Jesus rose, God the Father accepted his sacrifice for our sins. Because Jesus rose, God's kingdom has invaded the world. Because Jesus rose, he reigns as the Lord of heaven and earth who is actually going to return as the judge of the living and the dead in the end. For Paul, Jesus' bodily resurrection is like a load-bearing wall in that house for all you contractors. It's like that load-bearing wall. You know how important that load-bearing wall is. You knock that thing down, that house is coming down with it. The resurrection is like that load-bearing wall in the house. You knock out that, and every bit of Christianity comes crumbling down. And Luke is showing us that Christianity's legitimacy is tied to Jesus' resurrection. That because Jesus rose, Christianity is the legitimate outcome of Judaism, and Jesus' resurrection is central to our message because it's central to God's plan for the world. That's what we see right here. This is the message of the book of Acts. That Jesus lives and this changes everything. That's what the message of the book of Acts is all about. This is what makes Christianity different from everyone else. The world's going to say, that just sounds absurd. (laughs) Paul shows it's absolutely necessary to make sense of the world. So brothers and sisters, watch out for trying to domesticate the gospel by making the cross and resurrection about moral self-improvement or good advice for a better life or a new and better you. Watch out that that doesn't become your message. If we do so, we actually strip Christianity of what gives its 
of ultimately what gives it teeth, of what makes it unique, what makes it different, what makes it powerful. And it's precisely because it's different that we will face conflict like Paul. He is being judged in public because of the hope of the resurrection. Our beliefs will not allow us to be able to just privatize Christianity, to be a hermit in a hole and hold to our beliefs and seek to purify ourselves while staying away from the big bad world. Our beliefs won't allow us to do that. They will not allow us to privatize Christianity because Jesus' resurrection was a public event. This is a public truth that is in the world, and it's going to receive conflict. So we should not retreat from proclaiming the hard truths of the gospel, nor should we accommodate our message to the world's agenda in order to gain their respect. Instead, we respond by boldly declaring that because Jesus lives, you can actually live too. You no longer have to die a death for eternity, a million times, an infinite times over. You no longer have to die, but you can live. Your sin has resulted in your eternal death, but through Jesus' death for sin and his resurrection to life, you can be dead to sin and alive in Christ. This is the truth that does not change with each passing cultural fad or secular theory. The message of Christianity is one where Jesus is front and center so that he is ultimately the rock of stumbling and the stone of offense. That's what it is. Because Jesus rose, the resurrection is central to our proclamation, and it will bring conflict with the competing agendas of the day. But it's also because Jesus rose that we have comfort and courage in the midst of this conflict. Look at verse 11. Go down and look at verse 11. As this powder keg of division explodes right there in front of Paul, The Roman commander fears that Paul is going to be torn apart, so he orders him to be taken to the barracks. Yet the following night, Jesus stands by Paul. And he says this, Have courage. What mattered more than Paul's conflict was the one who stood by him in the midst of that conflict. He didn't need a spiritual pep talk. That's not what Jesus is giving him right here. He needed the words of the one who had been in his shoes and yet had overcome the world. That's the one who's telling him to have courage. Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, that they're going to have trouble in this world. You can take that to the bank. But to fear not, take heart, have courage. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Jesus knew what it was like to be falsely accused by the Sanhedrin. We saw that back in Luke chapter 22. But he also knew what it meant to overcome the world in all those false accusations through his death and resurrection. If there is anybody who could tell Paul to have courage and mean it and Paul receive it and actually get its full weight out of it, it's Jesus. And because Jesus rose... God's plan is still alive. And it's his plan that anchors Paul in the midst 
of this conflict. What does Jesus say right there? He gives him the reason. Why should you have courage? Look at verse 11. For or because, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. One of the ways that Luke actually communicates God's sovereign plan throughout the book of Acts is with that little phrase, it is necessary. Paul's suffering was not meaningless. It was necessary. It was necessary. Jesus' words comforted Paul because though his own people were against him, Paul was right in line with God's plan for him. And what was that plan? To testify, not only in Jerusalem, but in Rome, which actually confirmed Paul's words back in chapter 19, verse 21, of his desire of believing it necessary for him to be able to see Rome after he goes to Jerusalem. And he will certainly go to Rome, not in the way that he expected. This is the kind of hope and help that the resurrection brings to all of God's people, no matter what trial that you face in this life. And so, brothers and sisters, where do you turn for courage to continue following Jesus when your faith comes under threat? Where do you turn when you face hostility? Do you look within yourself to be able to do that? That's not going to help you because we are fallen and weak. Looking to the remedies that the world provides won't comfort you nor are they going to ease your pain to allow you just to escape for a moment. That just totally distracts from the main issue at hand. It does nothing with the real issue that is plaguing your soul. The only one who can provide courage to continue in the faith is the one who overcame every single conflict. He's the only one who can do it. Jesus doesn't remove Paul from his trial. He just moves him to the next one. (laughs) Trials that are going to seek to undo his faith. I mean, he is just going from trial to trial to trial all through the rest of the book of Acts. So he's not taking him out of those trials. He's just moving him to the next one, to the next one, and to the next one. But he continues because his courage rests upon the one who has conquered and called him to testify. That's where his courage is is rooted. We're going to face trial after trial after trial in this life. Inevitably, we will. No trial is beyond God's plan. And Jesus has called us to testify to his son before those in our lives and before those at the ends of the earth. Courage allows us to face a besetting sin with a resolve to put it to death, It allows us to be able to face difficult times through the lens of the hope of the resurrection. Courage gives us resolve to pray when we are overcome with fear, with anxiety, and with anger in our lives. It gives us resolve to show mercy when we're angry, to trust in God and his goodness and his greatness when we fear that the worst is coming. Courage allows us not to retreat from conflict from others, but to forgive and to reconcile with others, even whenever it's difficult to do. That's what courage does. 
gives you confidence and heart to do what is in, in line with God's word and what is in obedience to him. Courage is able to stare death in the face knowing that Christ is with us and Christ has already conquered death. Friends, because of Jesus' resurrection, we can take courage because he promised us that, we, that he would be with us to the very end of the age. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we take courage because God's plan is still alive and none of our trials are outside of God's good plans for us. Even when those plans often bring very unexpected things, as we're going to see right here, even in point two. Let's look at point two. The second scene right here is a devious plot. Verses 12 to 22. Paul is out of the frying pan of the Sanhedrin and is now into the fire of a plot to kill him. Forty men of the Jews bind themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they kill Paul. So they conspire with the Sanhedrin to make a a request to the Roman commander to bring Paul down and so that they can investigate his case more thoroughly. And as Paul gets near, their desire is to kill him. But what's striking with this whole section, this whole scene, is how intent these men are on killing Paul. They were so intent, they, they invoked a divine judgment upon themselves that they didn't carry it out. The word that's used right there to bind themselves under a curse is the word anathema. Now, when you and I think of the word anathema, we think like, oh, they wronged me, so they're anathema to me. Right? I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm not going to talk with them ever again because they wronged me. The word anathema right here is a whole lot stronger than that. The word right here is stronger. For something to be anathema, means that something is so morally worthless that we ought to devote it to destruction. This is how these men thought of themselves if they did not put Paul to death. They deserve to be destroyed if they didn't destroy Paul. That's what they're saying. And what irony. They thought that they were doing a righteous act according to God's plan that was good for society. And yet in reality, all of their plans were on a collision course with the very plan of God. It's been said that the devil typically sets his traps in the realm of piety, in the realm of godliness and righteousness. They thought they were honoring God. Instead, they had aligned with Satan, seeking to destroy the one whose message would actually bring them the forgiveness that they needed before God. Now, friends, you may read a story like this and think, well, I would never do that. I would not be so dumb as to do that. But in a way, don't we do this whenever we sin? Is this not what our sin does? To sin is not only to miss the mark of God's standard, it's also to side with evil. As sinners, we're naturally bent toward what God hates. In our sin, we conspire against the lordship of Christ by seeking to establish our own lordship over our lives. Sin, by its very nature, is rebellion against God because it rejects his authority. And outside of Christ, we side with evil and we sign our eternal death warrant. Every single time. But there's good news 
for you. If you're not a follower of Christ, there is good news for you. God's grace goes deeper than evil plans. Because we've seen that word anathema before in the New Testament used in this exact way. The other time that it's used in this way in the New Testament is Peter's third betrayal of Jesus in Mark 14, 71. Peter reserved his strongest language to speak of his separation between him and Christ. I don't know this man that you're talking about. Effectively, Peter is saying, let me be cursed and under the ban and be destroyed if I am found associated with him. Yet what Peter failed to see at that moment was that Jesus was going to the cross to bear the curse of Peter's sin upon himself. How incredible. Through Jesus' death for sin, there is forgiveness, not only for Peter, but for all sinners who conspire against the Lord in their sin. And friends, that's the same for you. If you are not a follower of Jesus, recognize that your sin deserves eternal destruction and you deserve to be eternally destroyed. But by God's grace, which goes deeper than even the evil plans of your sin, he has made the way for you to be forgiven of that sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can receive that forgiveness by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray that you would do that today and no longer be under the curse of that sin, but let Jesus, trusting in Jesus, that he has already taken that curse so that you could actually receive the blessing of eternal life. You can have that right now. I pray that you would do that. When our plans go against God's plan, God's plan always wins. And the Lord would thwart the plans of the wicked in the most unexpected of ways. Most unexpected of ways. As these men are plotting to kill Paul, their plot is compromised. Out of all the people, Paul's nephew remarkably just finds out about this plot and decides to go tell Paul about it. Out of everybody that could have found out, like, where are the apostles at in this gig? Where are other people that could have told Paul? But the Lord decides that Paul's nephew will do. And once the commander hears from him, he tells the nephew not to tell anyone that he's informed him. Now, for the youth in the room, I know that a lot of times you come into a sermon like this and you may think that, well, there doesn't really have anything for me. He's not really speaking to me. But in reality, we want you to know that we actually are speaking to you, that this sermon is just as much about you as it is about anybody else in this room. And I hope that when you read a passage like this, that it actually greatly encourages you. Because God uses young men and women to rescue, right? He uses young men and women for his divine providential plans, just like he has used Paul's nephew. God uses a young man, right? One who, in terms of the word that's used, is no longer, is not like a toddler or a child, nor nor are they married. They're right in that youth kind of age range. God uses a young man to rescue one of the most important people in the history of the church. That's intentional. It's intentional for this text. And I I recognize that being younger, a lot of times, you're kind of looking forward to you getting older so that you're going to have more respect, more responsibility from others. But what I want you to see is that age does not hinder God. 
It doesn't hinder God. God's purposes are not in, on hold because of someone's age. His purposes are not like getting a driver's license. Like, I cannot drive until I'm a certain age. That's not how God's purposes and his plans work. Instead, he can use you right now, even in your youth. God can use you. So there's no need to sell yourself short because even your age falls under the mighty hand of God and his good plans for his people. Now, how might God use you even in these early years of your life? Well, number one, I mean, just very simply, for those who have it, it would look like trusting in Jesus for salvation even whenever your friends don't. That's what it looks like. That's a huge step, and it will cost you. For those in Christ, it means walking in obedience to Jesus even as you get ridiculed for it because your obedience is a testimony to your peers that following Christ is really worth it because you're willing to face ridicule for the sake of his name. And for those who are older teenagers, it may mean joining a local church where you can serve others and grow in maturity and not only just serving yourself, but actually seeking to serve others as Christ has served you. These examples, they might seem simple, but trust me, for youth, they're earth-shattering today. These are earth-shattering things in today's society. God will often use the unexpected to execute his plan and prove himself faithful to his people. And he does so, again, not through a youth, but through a Roman commander in point number three. A divine protection. Let's look at our final scene right here. A divine protection. As the Roman commander hears of the plot on Paul's life, Paul gets a security detail that rivals the president of the United States for crying out loud. This is insane. He tells two of his centurions to get 200 soldiers with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen. That's 470 men to protect one man and deliver him to Caesarea. They don't really know what he did. (laughs) They're still trying to figure that out. They're totally confused by this guy. And yet he gets that kind of security detail. This was half of the commander's thousand-man garrison. This is bonkers. Not only that, but he also sends a letter to Felix, the governor of the region, stating why Paul's being brought to him, and that there's really no charge to be brought against Paul that merited death or imprisonment, effectively saying, Paul's innocent. To top things off, where does Paul end up? Before Felix. Felix finds out he's from Cilicia. Yeah, I'll hear you. And then what does he do? He places him in Herod's palace. Right, so let's think about this. Paul is now a prisoner in a palace under max protection. That's astounding. And it's meant for you to see how unexpected that is. Paul is getting better treatment by pagans than he is his own people. You cannot make this stuff up. You really can't. And the point that's being made is that God is orchestrating his plan by providential, providentially protecting his servant by the most unexpected of means. And all of this confounds the plans of men. I can't help but think of Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose 
that prevails. The Jewish people have no idea that they're fighting against the plan of God. The Romans have no idea they're actually delivering under the plan of God to testify before Rome that they're delivering Paul. And part of his own plan is to testify in Rome. And yet, they're the ones that are going to deliver him right to the heart of Rome. God uses Paul's nephew to outmaneuver the plot of the religious elite. He uses the Roman commander to deliver Paul for a third time now, a third time, to testify in Rome, all while providing posh accommodations while Paul is in prison. Brothers and sisters, if God provides this kind of protection to execute his plan for his servant, how much more for his people in the smaller details of your very lives? How much more? God is able to do that if he can provide this, and this is nothing for him. The Lord has proven himself faithful to provide the sacrifice for our sins and to accept that sacrifice for sins through the resurrection of Christ. He has proven himself faithful to Paul to execute this plan of salvation for the ends of the earth by whisking him off to Rome under posh conditions, though Paul's life is being threatened at every single trial. And even in the trials and in the triumphs of this life, God is proving himself faithful to us to execute his good plans for our very lives. That plan, may take you through pain. It may take you through conflict, grief. But ultimately it ends in glory when we experience the hope of the resurrection of the dead. God's plan for your life is good no matter what you face. All of it leads to you experiencing the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, we give praise to you that all of these unexpected things going on in the text are not just random. These did not happen by chance. All of this is orchestrated according to your plan and how you providentially protect your servant, and protect us as well. Lord, we pray that that would give us courage. As we face trials for preaching Jesus, as we face the trials of this life that threaten our faith, Lord, we pray that we would take courage, knowing that Christ has overcome the world, that the one who is standing by Paul, telling him to have courage, is also the one who has promised to be with us to the very end of the age. And so, Lord, we pray that that would give us heart and that we would take heart knowing that all things are leading to a glorious future. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.